Hey, this is Tim from Kalamunda Church of Christ, and today I hope that this podcast blesses you. If you are wanting to know anything more about our beautiful church, why don't you hop online and head to our website at kalamunda.church. It's good to be with you this morning, church. I am really excited, and my name is Tim. If we have not had the, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, um, but I have the privilege this morning of preaching and bringing the word. Um, and it's not often, I'm, I'm often up here serving, it's not often I get to sit and worship, and I think Tom was just so right. There is something else about worship in this space, where there's just an intimacy and an abandoning to God's will. So I'm going to do the same thing and abandon to His will, and we're just going to, we're going to see what God brings from this morning. I, um, yeah, I, I just want to welcome you, if you haven't been welcomed already. I know Tom already did it, but it is so good to be in the house of God this morning, is it not? I love coming to church on Sunday, and I love what I love. Um, Pastor Brad isn't here today. He is having some much well-earned and well-needed and well-deserved time off with his family. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing this week, but they're having a fantastic time, and we bless and we honor them. But I love what Brad says about church when it comes to his family and his kids. It's not a if we feel like it thing. It's not a sometimes we'll go or yeah you can you can stay at your friends. It's a no. It's an expectation. Just we're going to be there. We're going to be there because I, I don't want my kids, I don't want my family, I don't, I don't want my friends, my family missing out on what God might do on a Sunday as believers gather together because where two or more are gathered, He is there in their midst. Amen? But hey, we have been in a series called, ne- in, called Nehemiah Walls and Hearts where we've been looking at the story of Nehemiah and the building of the walls around Jerusalem. And it's an amazing story of 52 days rebuilding the walls, the entire walls around this city. A story of blessing, of God's favor upon people as there is opposition all around them, of a people. And it's this beautiful image of the church coming together unified coming together and working together, that they would actually start to press on into the calling that God has for them, change the world, change their area as a people group, unified together, that they worked so well together. And then last week and in the weeks previous, we've also just introduced that there was a little bit of opposition from the outside. But who knows, when something is good, the enemy can't handle that. And so there will be opposition from the outside, but when he has no choice because we are too strong against the outside and the outside can't get in, his next mode of attack is to come from the inside. And so today we're going to be looking at a bit of inner conflict within a people group, inner conflict within the people of God. And I mean, we have all been there with inner conflict, haven't we? I mean, I'm sure most of us have probably assembled an Ikea flat pack at one stage or another with a family member and the sides of those Ikea flat packs stop looking like pieces to construct and start looking like weapons after a certain amount of time because Ikea flat packs suck. Um, when you've got one Allen key and you can't find the other set, so you've got to put it together, there starts to be conflict. But I mean, we are built different, with different opinions, with different thoughts and feelings, and, and that can lead to differences of opinions. It happens, and there's going to be conflict out of that. Like, for instance, if we look around this room, there are different washing schedules for your sheets. Some families here, you might change sheets on beds weekly. Others, it might be two weekly. Some might be monthly. I have heard of twice a week sheets being changed in a family. That just shocked me because I don't have the time for that. But we've all got difference. And all I need to do right now to start a war in this place is to say that boxers are the best dogs on the planet. There we go. <laughs> That's only my family clapped. Um, 
but there's things we can't agree on. And why is it that my wife and I can't agree that boxers are the best? Why is it that some people like mullets and other people are smart? And And why is it? Why is it that all I need to do to get booed off this stage right now, you ready? Say, I think AFL is a stupid sport that you get rewarded for missing. Okay, okay, I I joke, I joke, I kid. But there is differences of opinions, and that that is such a natural thing. There is going to be conflict when we have differences of opinions, and when when we're different people that are coming together. But you notice that it's always in family that we fight the most. Ever had a, yell, a proper yelling match with somebody who isn't family? It's usually a bit more subdued. Maybe occasionally, but the proper yelling matches happen when it's like me and Nick arguing over just something ridiculous. But anyway, there's always differences of opinions. And that's what we notice in Nehemiah 5. There is this inner church conflict that starts to well up. It starts to bring this, this righteous anger out of Nehemiah. And what, we wanna, what I want to look at today is the three distinct things that Nehemiah does in chapter 5 when it comes to inner church conflict. And the first thing is that he, he responds to it. And I want to look at how he responded. The second I want to look at is what he actually got angry at. Because it was his righteous anger that built up. But if anger isn't directed by God, it's not righteous. It's just anger. And anger is not going to bring any unity. And the last thing I want to look at is the way that Nehemiah, he wasn't a hypocrite when it came to blessing others. He, wanted, he was on the forefront of showing people what it meant to be a blessing to those around you and to bless the nations, to bless the people of God. So we're going to get into the word Nehemiah 5, starting from verse 1. So up until this point, the people of God have been unified against an enemy outside. There's been people who have been struggling with that. They're like, well, we're kind of on attack from all angles. But he's like, no, you know what? Nehemiah's like, we're just going to rely on God. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. Everybody's going to carry a sword and we're just going to keep working. But then there came an outcry. So now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. See, many people in this church, in most churches in fact, have been hurt by people around them. In church, And it was said to me recently, it was actually said by Pastor Brad, and I have to agree, it, like, it clicked and it kind of it hit home a little bit. In recent years, the majority of any hurt that I've actually felt in my life has, has come from people standing right beside me in church. And it's not a criticism of church at all, because it's actually just called being a family. Because families squabble, am I right? Anybody got kids? Been in a good punch-up? in the last week where it was over something ridiculous, like who's, who ate whose cookie? No, are we the only ones that actually, oh, no punching, all right, sorry. That was just me and my brother, no. But it's called being a family. See, I have never, as I said before, I've never been in a yelling match with somebody outside of my immediate family. But the amount of heated debates I have been in with Nicholas or James or mum or dad about something ridiculous, the amount of times that we have kicked each other in the face, 
It's not a, not a word of a lie. The amount of times that we've, we've come at each other yelling, throwing things, that doesn't happen outside of a family. Because the closer you are, that comes with the reality. Hurt is more personal. Hurt goes deeper. The amount of times I was jealous of what Nick was wearing. So I would mix it up in my washing, so that in the washing basket, and then I'd put it away in one of my drawers and hide it for like two weeks so that he, he I thought he might forget about it. Then I'd start wearing it. He'd immediately point it out and slap me on the back of the head. But families squabble and they fight and it's normal. But it, there is the reality. The closer you are to somebody, the more personal any hurt that you receive is going to be. Somebody at work does something that might hurt you. You could just brush it off as, oh, it's just business. But when there's a closeness, when there's a relationship, where there's an intimacy, hurt can run deeper. But in, in Nehemiah, we see the people of Jerusalem have been returning from all over the world. They've been returning from seasons of slavery. Some of them have never seen anything but slavery. They are finally freed. They are finally stepping into the promised land. There's a rebuilding to protect the presence of God. And it's steeped with, with unity. It's steeped with the presence of God, with power, with authority, with anointing and blessing. The people have come together, are sacrificing and working hard alongside each other. And then amongst this blessing, it comes to light that the wealthy are basically extorting those who are in a poor position or in, in a bit of a vulnerable state and forcing people in vulnerable positions to mortgage their properties to sell their possessions, to sell even their children, to be able to actually afford to live. And this isn't a foreign invasion. We've talked about Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah. This is the people of God oppressing the people of God. There is constant outside opposition, but we, we really need to be aware. The devil, if he can't get at something from the outside, he's just going to come from the inside. And he is neutral in church conflict. He's just going to supply ammo to both sides. Because his most effective weapon against us is not take one of us out. Not take somebody down and kill them. If he can get us distracted, he can get us off mission. If he can get us distracted, if he can take one person out, then there's another person. And before you know it, you've got a bunch of people at each other. And at each other's throats or oppressing each other. Before too long, you've got a people that aren't focusing on the main thing. They're not keeping Jesus at the center. They're not freeing the oppressed. They're the ones doing the oppressing. And if he can get us distracted, then he's got us right where he wants us. We're not on mission for God anymore. I mean, even in Acts, the early church, Acts 6, it's just been birthed. The spirit of God has been released. There is wonder after wonder after miracle after miracle. The church is growing like never before in the thousands like just each day, it's growing like it never has. And then in Acts 6, even for a church that is so healthy, said, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. See, all throughout the Bible, all throughout history, when something good is going for God, there comes internal conflict. Because the enemy, he'll come at us from the inside. And what's interesting, when it comes to this church conflict in Nehemiah, there, there, isn't, this, there isn't this space where the enemy's causing the famine. In likelihood, with all the research that I've looked into and in talking to Brad, the famine was likely caused by the calling that was on the Israelite people. 
So they brought all the people together to build this wall. The whole community was building. There's a few people that weren't, but the whole community was building. And this probably meant the people that were actually meant to be working out in the fields, working out in the vineyards, producing the food, were currently building the wall. Which meant in doing what they were actually called to do, they were going hungry. In doing what they were called to do, and sometimes I think we need to recognize that in working for the kingdom, in relying on God's prompting, we'll need to rely on God not just for our next step, but even our next meal. And see, Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. And our obedience and reliance on Jesus should never shift with the seasons. See, our calling may not be easy, but when it gets hard, and if the hardship is the result of our calling, it is so easy to start pointing fingers and say, well, you're the cause for this. You're the problem that it's getting hard. Instead of actually coming back to reliance on God. And sometimes I think we need to be aware of that. When we, are all sold, when we are sold out for the calling that Jesus has on each of our lives and as a church, there, comes, there can come points where we are so on fire for Jesus that the provision of food, we're not actually tending to our crops. And therein lies the reliance on God. It's a season we need to rely on God. But instead, we turn to church conflict because it's somebody else's fault. See, but Nehemiah, he doesn't just hear this heartache and not act. There's a pausing and then there's an acting. And actions, I mean, actions are ridiculously impossible. I mean, ridiculously important, not impossible. But it says, I, I, was, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel with myself. See, Nehemiah's response to conflict within the people of God was not an all-out assault. He wasn't like a bull that had a red cloak. He wasn't just straight out of the gate. Nehemiah's response was to pause, to take a moment, to sit in silence with his God and to receive from him. And there is such power in a moment of silence. There is such power in waiting to receive from God before action is required. And most people would have heard the saying, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. Brad says it, Juddie said it the other week. Or they're saying actions speak louder than words. There is something powerful about silence. And it's really hard to use silence and influence people. It's really hard to not speak and to actually impact people's lives sometimes. I mean, there's, there's people that are amazing at it. Like you can get a mime who can do such creative things and just move you. But for most people to move anybody, it usually takes words. I mean, there's somebody that I admire ridiculously in life, and it's, it's Rowan Atkinson. I believe he is a master of silence because there are very few people that are as ridiculously smart as him with engineering degrees, yet without using a single word, because most comedians need to use words to make you laugh. And then we can agree there's a lot of crass humor out there that's not funny and a lot of monotonous, boring humor, dad jokes that are... Not funny. Um, <laughs> but Rowan Atkinson, as Mr. Bean, can make almost any, any demographic of people, from the youngest to the oldest, laugh till their socks fall off without uttering a single word. He just needs to change his face and you're laughing. And there is such power in that. He's the best at what he does. And all it takes is silence. And church, if we are actually going to be the best at what we do, if we are going to 
actually step into the calling that God has for our church, for each of us, then we need to get better at silence. We need to get better at taking a moment and pondering before we act, to actually sit with God and say, God, what is it that you would have us do? What is it that you would have us do? See, there is power in silence and contemplation and waiting. That's why James 1.19 says, Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I think that's really important. There's a very big difference between righteous anger and anger. And you notice how silence and a lack of speaking is indicative of righteous anger. So the first thing that Nehemiah did in his response is he was silent, but then he acted. In Nehemiah 7, in Nehemiah 5, 7 to 8, it says, And I brought these charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You were exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and couldn't find a word to say. See, righteous anger, it welled up in Nehemiah at that point. And there's two reasons which we'll get into shortly about why Nehemiah, I believe, was so righteously, ang righteously angry. But there's one thing that we need to notice about the way that Nehemiah responded. This wasn't his opinion because his opinion wasn't going to bring unity and that's one thing we, we, I always have to remind myself of. My opinion, if I don't share it with another, all we're going to do is clash. The only way that unity comes is conviction through the Spirit. And the Spirit is on the Word. So what Nehemiah is actually doing here in chapter 7 and 8 is he's just referencing Scripture. And he's taking the people back to the Word of God. Because the Scripture was so clear on exacting interest from a brother and turning your fellow Israelites into slaves before you. See, the scripture's unfailing. The spirit is on the word and it can convict. So in Exodus 22, 25, which the Israelites would have known this, is if you lend money to any of my people who is with you, who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest. Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. And Leviticus 25, 39 says, if your brother beside you, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. See, Nehemiah simply referenced scripture. His opinion wasn't doing anything in that space, even though he thought this is wrong and they probably knew it. The reason why the people were silent is because there is no authority that can come against scripture. So all he needed to do is say, hey, what does the word say about this? See, when it comes to church conflict, oftentimes our opinions clash. But we need to bring it back. What does the word say? And what situations do we need the word of God for? What situations do we need it spoken into? Because the reality is, if we're getting angry about things and it's not in line with the word, is it really righteous anger? You see, the first thing Nehemiah does is he responds. So he responds in silence and he stops, collects himself, hears from God. Then the next thing he does is he steps out and references scripture. Conflict between believers, it's only going to be solved when we look at what did God say? What does the word say? What is the authority in this space? And it's what God 
says in the word. But there were two reasons I believe that Nehemiah was angered. He had, he first, he had a heart for healing, but he had a heart for the oppressed. And there's two reasons I believe that he was angered. See, in verse 9 it says, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear, in reverence of our God, and prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? See, in this moment, I reckon Nehemiah was embarrassed a bit. I believe he was angered because the people of God were disobeying and dishonoring God. They knew the scriptures. They knew what was expected of them. There was such hypocrisy in their serving. And we can see this again and again throughout history in church. In church even now, we can see this hypocrisy. I'm serving the kingdom. I'm going all out for Jesus. I'm giving everything I have. But that part of the word doesn't matter. I'm serving all out for, I'm spending 24 hours a day building this wall, but it's okay for my brother to be a slave. And there was such hypocrisy in the people. You can't be all out for Jesus 98% of the way. 2% is all the devil needs to be able to pull us out of our calling and make us ineffective. See, they were disobeying, making a mockery of God. And I believe that boiled Nehemiah's blood. Notice how his blood didn't boil. It didn't say that he was righteously angry at Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshen, and the people coming against God. Frustrated, yeah, but it said he was angry when people who should have known better weren't honoring God. There's no point getting angry at people who don't know God for coming against God. That's what they're going to do. But he was angry. The people of God weren't honoring God in everything they do. And I believe the second reason that he was angry was simply because the people of God were being oppressed and pulled back from their calling. Now, he had a heart for the people, but you notice if people were becoming slaves, were being oppressed and were being reduced to less than what they were called to be, there was one thing that wasn't going to be done as efficiently, the calling of the people, the building of the wall. For the church's mission to actually be successful, for the people to grow, for the wall to be built, they needed to be a workforce. And if that workforce was being oppressed by its own people, the wall wasn't being built. See, they were unable to do the thing that they were actually called to do. And much like Jesus, Luke outlined amazingly earlier this year, if you haven't listened to it, one of the best sermons I've ever heard of all time, like not joking. In our Q&A series, he talked about, did Jesus get angry? And yes, Jesus got angry. There was righteous anger that welled up in him multiple times throughout the Bible where people were being oppressed and were being held back from all they were called to be, held back from right relationship with God, held back from what God had set them apart for. That's when Jesus got angry. And Nehemiah, in the exact same way, he was getting angry because he said, how dare you restrict what God has over their life? How dare you restrict? Their calling right now is build this wall. And if they can't build it because we are holding them back, we're just hamstringing ourselves. See, for the purpose of the larger church, Nehemiah kept at his mission and ignored the people, ignored those hurting. The work could have been done slower. And church, if we are leaving people behind, if we are ignoring the plight of the needy, then all we are doing as Christians is taking workers out of the workforce, and taking soldiers out of the army because people are not equipped to be everything that they are called to be. And honestly, how dare we as humans reduce somebody to less than God called them to be? 
When it comes to oppression, it shouldn't be out of a sense of we just want people to be okay and be free. No, we want them to be everything God called them to be. That was the heart that Nehemiah had. It wasn't just that people would be free. It's just, you know what? If God's doing something, I want these people a part of it, not oppressed and slaves. See, I I think that there's a question that's been on my heart. Have I lost the capacity to be angry at the right things? See, as righteous anger burned because this is what the scripture says and this is what the people were doing. And he saw the call of God over these people's lives isn't able to be achieved. They are being pulled back. And I've got a challenge for each of us. See, our anger in any situation needs to be rooted in scripture. If it's not, it's not righteous. But if the word isn't clear about what your heart is hurting about, There is a chance, I'm not saying it's the case, but there is a chance that what you are actually angry about isn't righteous and in line with God's will. It's actually the enemy trying to distract you. See, if Scripture is not clear, if Scripture doesn't have anything to say about it, chances are it's not God putting that anger on your heart. And we're getting angry about the wrong things and just getting distracted. Come on, are we alive today? Cool, you're really quiet. It's either good because you're all listening or... I'm about to get things thrown at me. Um, But the the second thing, so the first thing, Nehemiah had a heart for healing. He wanted to see the people healed, whole, ready to go. The second thing, he had a heart for the oppressed. It's not right that people can't be all God called them to be. He said, you know what? We actually need need to equip these people. We need to free these people so they can do what God has called them to do in their life. And the last thing is he had a heart to bless. Nehemiah had a heart to bless. I think it's one of the single most amazing examples of using his wealth for good that there is in the word. He wasn't a hypocrite. He was preaching, bless them, free them. And he was doing just that. So many people in this world, myself included, preach, bless them, free them. And I'm not blessing or freeing. So in Nehemiah, 5 verse 14 says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of fear of God. See, Nehemiah realized something. If the call that was over his life and over the people was to be actually come to fruition, was to actually be realized and accomplished, he needed a workforce that were fed and that were willing to work alongside him. And so if you're a leader in any capacity, whether at your work, whether in your family, whether at church, wherever the space, there is something to be said for servant leadership, for somebody who will get down in the trenches with their workers. So just a good challenge for leadership at any point, but he was a mirror opposite of the rich folk. See, he wasn't taxing on his lending. He wasn't taking the food allowance that was due to him. He was allowed to take a food allowance. It was expected and he didn't. He wasn't taking the extra income that he could have. He worked alongside the laborers and he invited 150 people to his dinner table every night and paid for it out of his own pocket, not his governor's Expense account. See, much like the person, Jesus, he got down in the mud with the people and worked alongside them and blessed them. He didn't just have them serve him. He served with them and served them. 
And I think it's a beautiful image of leadership. But Nehemiah truly embodied 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. He said, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous, to be willing to share In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. If I could have the worship team join me. See, I so often get myself confused when it comes to these statements in the word about wealth and being rich. Because in in our privileged hills, Perth hills living, Perth living, Western society lifestyle, my picture of wealth is very different to other people's around the world. When I think of somebody wealthy, and I'm not, we're not talking here like wealthy in life and experience and richness and spirit. We're talking purely financially. When I think wealthy, I think a mansion, multiple fancy cars, private schooling, a great job, holidays multiple times a year. Whereas other people around the world would see wealthy as two meals a day, a roof over your head, access to electricity, access to healthcare, access to schooling. And church, if we're not convicted by Nehemiah's actions here, the way that he blessed and poured out love, blessing on the people around him, then I fear we're going to get caught in this trap that, well, Nehemiah was rich, obviously, to feed 150 people a day and to do that from his own expense. And it's okay, when I I get to that level of richness, I'll bless. Or I'm happy to bless when I'm comfy and I can bless with what's left over. The problem is that never comes. We never get there. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. says, money is the root of all evil. Church, I've been convicting myself on this this week and it's been challenging me to my core. I am the wealthiest I have ever been. I am wealthier than I could ever imagine right now and I have the opportunity to bless but if if I'm going to wait until I'm comfy and then I'll bless with what's left over, it will never come because we can never get enough finances. We can never get enough time in our day if we're not willing to bless of our time, if we're not willing to get in the trenches next to those who are serving, if we're not willing to take our finances and say, God, use it all. I'll live with what's left over. That's not reliance on God. That's not letting God do what He needs to do. That's relying on me and then allowing God to work in the background. See, I don't want to stand face to face with God at the end of my life. Say, I don't know you. You didn't stand up for the poor and the oppressed. You didn't stand up for the hurting, for the widows. I'm deathly scared of that. So that means in my life, for the rest of my life, I need to do everything I can to be everything Jesus called me to be. Because his heart, Jesus... And Nehemiah's as well. It wasn't wasn't to flaunt blessing. Jesus wasn't an outspoken. Everything was about the miracles. No, everything was about the poor. 
Everything was about the oppressed. Everything was about those who were downcast in society. Everything was about those who had nowhere to go. He made room at his table for them. And we're not talking here that if you've got, you're barely able to afford rent that you need to give all your money away. No, it's about having a heart to bless. Wherever I can, whatever I can, I will. I mean, in Isaiah, it says, who will go? And Isaiah simply says, send me. Send me. God, whatever it is you need of me, however it is you need me to bless, if it seems uncomfortable, I'm doing it. That means I just get a chance to rely on you again. You see, we can learn from Nehemiah when it comes to church conflict. We need to be silent and wait on God. Then once we've been silent and we have waited and God has spoken, we need to ground everything we say in Scripture. If Scripture's not clear on it, are you speaking God's will? Well, there's only other one, one other will. It's got to be grounded in Scripture. That's the only way unity comes when the Spirit convicts. As believers, our opinion does nothing. And see, anger won't be righteous. It's not going to glorify God if it's not in line with His Spirit, with Scripture. And we are in the best position we have ever been to bless others. Ever. And would our blood boil that there are people in this world that are unable to fulfill the calling that they have over their life because they are oppressed, because they are pulled back. Church, I want us to be the best at what God's called us to be. But if we're leaving people behind, all we're doing is hamstringing our army. All we're doing is hamstringing the workforce. If we are taking ground, we need everybody alongside with us. The bigger the army, the stronger the army. So hey, as we come into this time of worship, we're just going to worship to finish up. I hope if I've challenged you, awesome, my job is done. I think if you leave a sermon and you haven't been challenged and encouraged, then the preacher hasn't done his job. But if I've challenged you, awesome. But I just want to encourage us as we worship. Would we posture ourselves to say, God, whatever you need from me, whatever the blessing is, whatever the calling is over my life, I'm in. Whatever I need to give up and whatever I need to give over to you to bless others, I'm in. God, boil my blood for the right reasons that you would be glorified and that we would free people into their calling. And church, would we recognize the enemy, he's neutral in church conflict. He's neutral in family conflict. See, church conflict goes well beyond this building and well beyond this congregation. I know there is family conflict in people's lives. There are uncles, there are brothers, there are sisters and mothers, there are fathers, there are siblings who have not been what you've needed in your life, who have caused hurt and pain like there has never been. But if we can't line it up with Scripture, if we're going to bring our opinion of hurt, there will never be unity. So would we bring it back, make the main thing the main thing? And would we have enough courage to say, you know what, I'm angry about something, but Scripture's not clear on this. Enemy, you've got no more power anymore. Jesus, take this hurt, take my opinion, get rid of it. I want more of you. So hey, would you... um? 
If you feel comfortable, would you stand with me? As we come into this time of worship. I'd love